Thank you for listening to the Calvary Monterey podcast. Please visit calvary.com to learn more about our church. And visit nateholdridge.com for additional Bible teaching from our lead pastor, Nate Holdridge. Teaching today is our lead pastor, Nate Holdridge. All right, church, great to be with you yet again. And here we are the Sunday before Christmas, and so I thought we'd have a special time thinking about Jesus, the birth of Christ, from Galatians chapter 4. If you turn there in your Bibles, Galatians chapter 4, just a couple of verses from this chapter and a message that I've called, The Son Who Came to Make Sons. The Son Who Came to Make Sons. And I can't wait to declare this uh, to you today. I remember a time when I was away from home studying scripture at a small little Bible college, 18 years old, when all of a sudden in the middle of a semester, my mouth began to hurt. I, I, I began realizing pretty quickly that I needed to get my wisdom teeth removed. And I went to the dentist and discovered I needed all four wisdom teeth to get removed very quickly. The only problem was I didn't have any dental insurance. I didn't have a car to come home to get dental work done in my hometown. I had to save up a little bit of money, find a dentist in my college town, and then go get my wisdom teeth removed. And to be able to afford it, I couldn't get knocked out. I just had the local anesthetic. They sent me back to my little dorm room and my face was just a mess. You know, my roommates, I definitely didn't win any roommate of the week awards that week. You know, I had bloody gauze everywhere. My face was all swollen and the cafeteria definitely did not help me with my dietary needs in that moment. And just during that time, some faculty of the Bible college I was at heard about my predicament. They heard about little 18-year-old Nate Holdridge in his dorm room needing his mom. And so they invited me to come over to their house. And for a couple of days, I just hung out on their couch as they bought me ice cream and fed me soft foods and brought me fresh bandages. It was just so encouraging and comforting at the perfect little moment since I couldn't return home to be comforted by my own family. For a brief moment, they brought me home by bringing me into their home. This Christmas, we have to remember that Jesus came so that he could bring us fully and completely home, home into God's family. On a lonely night 2,000 years ago, Jesus arrived in anonymity. The time was right, so he arrived for us, born like everyone else, in order to bring us, his people, home to God. That was his mission, to set us free from our burdens, to set us free from that which ostracized us from God, and to bring us home to himself. And so today, in this little passage, two verses that we're going to look at today, we're going to ask questions, four questions. When did Jesus come? Where did Jesus come from? How did Jesus come? And most importantly of all, why did he come? Let's, let's read the text, though, because that's where we're going to find the answers to all four of those questions. Verse 4 and 5 of Galatians chapter 4. It says, but, but when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth 
his son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law so that we might receive adoption as sons. It's such a short little passage. It's worth reading twice, so let's read it again. But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law so that we might receive adoption as sons. Now I realize we're dropping into this little section, these two verses, out of nowhere. We've been studying Mark. Now here we are in the book of Galatians. But what you should know is that Galatians is one of Paul's earliest works. And in it, he combated the idea that faith plus works leads to salvation. He warned his audience about the danger of trying to obtain or keep God's favor through the keeping of the law or losing God's favor when you're out of step with God's law. And here, to bolster his argument, Paul seems to have quoted an early Christian confession. There's a few clues, I won't get into them uh, here today, that this saying, verse four and five, actually in some ways predated Paul's writing ministry and was actually a statement that had circulated around Christian churches at this time, early on in the life of the church. And this formulaic saying or creed was a way for believers to succinctly declare what they believed about Jesus. And it makes for a beautiful Christmas meditation. So let's observe it together. Now, the first question I said that we would ask is, when did he arrive? That's the first thing we'll look at. Number one, when did Jesus arrive? Well, look at the first half of verse four. That's where we'll get our answer. It says, but when the fullness of time had come, when the fullness of time had come. So when did Jesus come? Well, he came when the fullness of time had come answers to your question, right? When did Jesus come? When the fullness of time had come. Well, that leaves us kind of wondering, what does that mean? What what does it mean that it was the right time for Jesus to be born, that it was the fullness of time, that it was the perfect moment for the Christ to come? I want to answer that in three ways. I want to answer it first in the historical sense. You see, since Jesus was going to die and rise and send out messengers through the world, Dying at the time he did was actually the perfect moment for his death. You see, the Roman Empire had forced peace upon the known world at that time. We call it Pax Romana as we look back on Roman history. Various nations and people groups were subjected to the Roman government, uh, but it made their coexistence something that was new. Nations coexisting together because of the threat and the power uh, and even the benefit of the Roman government. And the Romans had also hacked out a road system that was revolutionary and state-of-the-art so that you could get to these nations all over the earth. And people had also, during this time or era, grown tired of the moral abyss of paganism and Greek mythology that had been left behind. And so people were hurting at this moment in world history. And on top of all of that, almost everyone in the known world spoke Greek. They could speak the Greek language. So you combine all of these elements and you discover a perfect opportunity for the church that Jesus's life, death, burial, and resurrection and ascension would birth. 
The church could go everywhere proclaiming the good news of King Jesus, traveling Roman roads, visiting places under Roman rule, and utilizing the Greek language. They could tell a hurting world that Christ had come. So that's the historical perspective that I think points us to the fullness of time. But there's also a biblical point of view. You know, throughout the Old Testament scriptures, there are clues uh, that are given about the timing of the coming of Christ. Uh, it, It predicted when the Messiah would come. For example, in Psalm 22, Jesus's death by crucifixion is written of in complete detail. It was written many years before crucifixion was even invented, and of course, many years before Jesus had even arrived. But it describes the events of the cross, like I said, in detail. Pierced hands, pierced feet, bones out of joint but not broken, a ruptured heart, even the details of casting lots for his garments or being surrounded by his tormentors or his cry to the Father, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? All of these things are in Psalm 22, but none of that could occur until crucifixion was, was a thing, until crucifixion had been utilized and perfected by the Roman government as a form of capital punishment. There's also the astounding prophecy of Daniel chapter nine. In Daniel chapter nine, Gabriel appears to the prophet Daniel when Daniel and the people of Israel are in exile in Babylon. And he tells Daniel about a future set of 490 years. 483 of those years from the command to restore and rebuild Jerusalem until the coming of the Christ was predicted by Gabriel. And when King Artaxerxes told Nehemiah to go restore and rebuild Jerusalem, you count it off 483 years later and you come to the very time of Jesus himself. He could arrive no later, according to Daniel's prophecy. And on top of more prophetic elements like Psalm 22 or Daniel 9, there was the general anticipation uh, that Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob would have a descendant who would be a blessing to all the nations. This is the Abrahamic promise that God began making to him and his family starting in Genesis chapter 12. This figure would be the one who crushed the head of the serpent like God had told Eve way back in the garden in Genesis 3, verse 15. So they were all waiting for this figure, this descendant of Abraham to come and be a blessing to all the nations. So the time was right for Jesus to come from a biblical point of view. But there's a third and final point of view that I wanna point out to you today about the fullness of time. And it's just this, the divine point of view, God's point of view. In other words, I just say it like this in plain English, God was ready for this event. Part of the reason I know that is because in the verses right before Galatians 4, verse 4 and 5, you have Galatians 4, verse 3. And there, Paul tells us that we used to be enslaved to the elementary principles of the world. It's not likely the way that any of you have ever described your life before Jesus. You know, what I was was enslaved to the elementary principles 
principles of the world. And part of the reason why you might not talk like that is because scholars have been debating for a long time what Paul actually meant by the elementary principles of the world. Some people think he was talking about the pagan mythologies and religions that were circulating around that time. Some people think that he was talking about the basics of the law that are written on every human heart. You know, don't steal. We kind of know that to be wrong intuitively because God's written it upon our hearts. Some people think that he was thinking exclusively of the ceremonial Jewish religious law and its demands on the Jewish people only. And some people think he was talking about spiritual beings, principalities and powers that exist and exert influence on the earth's inhabitants. I wonder if he was thinking about all of these things combined, put together as a pressure upon the human species. But what is clear is that God was ready to rescue us from that. You know, we're studying the book of Exodus right now uh, at our midweek through the Bible study. And there the people of Israel for 400 years had lived in relative peace in Egypt. And eventually a Pharaoh arose that did not remember Joseph and did not favor the people of Israel. And that Pharaoh, you remember, he began to persecute God's people. And so God's people began to cry out to God for deliverance. God heard their cry and God was ready to deliver them. In like manner, God looked at the situation of humanity at the time that he sent his son. And he sent Jesus at that moment because his rescuing heart was ripe to rescue humanity. As we read, it says in verse four, but when the fullness of time had come, who acted? It says, God sent his son. God was ready. To him, the time was full. The son had to be sent. So all of this speaks to us of when Jesus came, the timing of Christ's birth. But our second question is, uh, where did Jesus come from? Where did Jesus come from? Now, before looking at that, I should just mention really quickly the perfect and beautiful timing of God. You know, there's the fullness of time. God, in his sovereignty, chose the exact moment that would be perfect for the sending of his son. Looking back, we can see that it was the perfect time. That should speak to us in our own lives today because so often before the moment God moves and even during the moment God moves, we sometimes question God's timing. But after God moves, and certainly from eternity, that vantage point, looking back upon God's decisions, we will say that God did everything right, that God did everything well. And as we look back on the time that he sent Jesus, we see that in a, in a beautiful way, in the right and full time God sent his son. But again, the second question, where did Jesus come from? Well, for that, we look at the second little phrase in verse four. If you look back in your Bibles with me, it says that God sent forth his son. This tells us where Jesus came from. He was not created it does not say God created his son. It says that he was sent forth from his son. In other words, Jesus was pre-existent. He came from the very presence of God. He is eternally pre-existent. There is no beginning for Jesus. Always existent, the second person of the triune God. Jesus has never not been. I know that's a double negative, but I just thought it sounded better. He's never not been. He's always 
been. That's why God sent forth his son. He sent him forth. He did not make him. Instead, Jesus stepped out of eternity. Like it says in Philippians 2, verse 7, to give you some scriptures today, Jesus made himself nothing, took the form of a servant, and was born in the likeness of men. And this was how the early church thought about Jesus, that he had stepped out of eternity and come to be one of us. They believed that. They believed that he was not just a normal man, but the eternal son of God who had been sent by the Father God. Here's another evidence of it from Romans 8, verse 3 and 4. Paul said, for God has done what the law, weakened by the flesh, that's us, could not do, by sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin. He condemned sin in the flesh in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us. That's basically Galatians 4, verse 4 and 5, said in a different way in Romans 8, verse 3 and 4. Even John gets on the train of talking about God sending forth the Son when he said in 1 John 4, verse 9, in this, the love of God was made manifest among us that God sent his only Son into the world so that we might live through him. So the early church understood Jesus. They knew that he had been sent from the Father. And by the way, this sending process, you know, the Father sending the Son, this was all of God. It had nothing to do with us. God is the one who initiated this whole process. In fact, the reason that we weren't the ones that initiated is because we could not initiate. The Bible says in Ephesians 2, verse 1 and 3, that we were dead in trespasses and sins. Dead people cannot initiate with God. We were under sin and unable to seek God, according to Romans chapter 3. We'd fallen short of the glory of God, according to the same chapter. And we were condemned with our ancestor Adam, according to Romans 5, verse 12. But in our dead and broken state, God initiated with us by sending his beloved to save us so that we could become his beloved. Not only did God initiate, but the passage hints at God conspiring. I mean, you get that, right? There's the Father sending the Son. Last week, we talked about the triunity of God, that God is one, yet in three persons. And here you have the Father and Son conspiring together, this great plan, the Father desiring it, the Son submitting to it, and desiring it himself, for he would always want the will of God, for he is God himself. So, God conspired. And how did God send his son? It's the marvelous story that we're celebrating every Christmas season. It's astounding to think of the inconceivable way that God sent his son. We would never have engineered a story like the story of Jesus. The son of God born in complete anonymity there in Bethlehem. The angels singing on the outskirts of town to hardly anyone. No one celebrating the monumental birth of the world's savior. Innocent and unknown, Christmas came and the world knew it not. The world just continued suffering along even though the great joy and great message had been kicked off. And Jesus' whole childhood and early life was lived that way. 
you know, out of the public life, public eye, off the grid, you know, off in Nazareth, a nowhere town that nobody visited. God had become man, but for the longest time, no one even knew that God had sent his son. It's just an incredible story. And for us, this Christmas and every Christmas, we should take moments, whether it's in our quiet times or with our children, if we have them, or with fellow church members, we should take moments where we just contemplate and meditate upon the coming of Christ, this first coming of Jesus and the way in which he came. But that leads us to our next question. How did Jesus arrive? How did Jesus arrive? Let's look in verse four, the last part of it, to see the answer to this question. He was born of woman, born under the law. Born of woman, born under the law. Now, I'll be honest with you. Uh, Over the centuries, many Christians have been bothered uh, by the general way that Paul said this. He said that Jesus was born of a woman. And what people would prefer that Paul had said was clearly that Jesus was born of a virgin. Not just a woman, but a young virgin. And the truth of the matter is that Jesus was born of a young virgin woman. Her name was Mary, as I'm sure all of you know. And uh, I think that because the Roman Catholic Church for many years venerated her too highly and kind of spoke of her or taught that she is a way to kind of get Jesus's attention. And listen, if you're under the blood, you got Jesus's attention. But because they taught this about Mary, that she could get Jesus's attention for you, uh, many Protestant Christians over the years have neglected to rejoice over this incredibly godly woman. But she was a courageous person who willingly accepted God's plan for her life. She wanted the Lord's will, even though it was hard. She had a costly role, especially in a society like hers. Her whole life was filled with rumors and innuendo. People whispered that she was a sinful woman. And all those whispers had nothing on the experience of watching her son, as a full-grown man, suffer and die a gruesome death. She paid a deep price for her devotion to God, but there's no indication anywhere in scripture that she was ever bitter about the decision that she'd made, ever bitter about what she was asked to do. In fact, in the church's earliest days, after Jesus ascended, there's a little prayer meeting of 120 people. They were waiting for the outpouring of God's spirit. And guess who was there? Mary. She knew that she needed a savior. She knew that Jesus was that savior. And she knew she was gonna be on the team that went out and preached that savior and that she needed the help of the Holy Spirit to do so. She wanted to be part of her son's mission. But Paul doesn't say that she was born of a virgin here. He says that she was born of a woman. And I think it's because he's trying to highlight the humanity of Jesus, not the miraculous nature of his birth, but the fact that he became like us. He was born of a woman. He's fully God, yet fully man. You know, theologians call this the hypostatic union, which I think would be a great hip hop band name. (laughs) Since humanity was broken, we needed 
God to create a new humanity. That's the situation. Since humanity was broken, we needed God to create a new humanity, one that is compatible with his holiness and his majesty. The old humanity, the one in Adam, could not connect to God. So Jesus died on the cross for old humanity's sin so that all who trust in him could be forgiven and become new. But for a new humanity to be possible, we needed a new human. We had Adam, and we all copied him, but we needed another option. And Jesus is that option. He is the one who makes a new humanity. Like it says in Ephesians 2, verse 15, Jesus abolished the law of commandments expressed in ordinance that he might create in himself one new man in place of the two, so making peace. By the way, this truth that God became man should, I think, send shockwaves through your soul. You just think about it. God understands you better than anyone understands you. He knows you from the divine angle and that he knows all of your thoughts. He knows who you are. He knows how you're feeling. But on the other hand, he's able to understand what he knows because he became flesh and dwelt among us. He experienced temptation and struggle to the furthest degree. I say the furthest degree because you or I, when tempted, eventually give in. But Jesus never gave in. The pressure of temptation grew hotter and hotter, yet he always resisted. So he knows the pressure of temptation beyond anything that we could ever endure. He's experienced despair. Better than anyone here, Jesus comprehends the human experience. He can sympathize, the Bible says, with our weakness. Listen to this from Hebrews 2, verse 18. It says, for because he himself has suffered when tempted, he is able to help those who are being tempted. Jesus suffered. But Paul also says a second thing, not just that Jesus was born of a woman, but look at again, verse four, it says that he was born under the law. This means that the weight of human obligation was on Jesus. The moral law of the universe weighed on his mind. Uh, the, The 10 commandments, as an example, were a guiding light for Jesus. The ceremonial law of Israel had to be fulfilled by Jesus. He was born under the law, subjected to the standard of holiness laid out in scripture. And the Bible reveals Jesus as completely obedient to God's law, completely obedient to God's will. He's the son who fulfilled the law of God. There was not even one area that he was negligent to obey God. Look at what it says in Hebrews 5, verse 8 on the screen there. It says, although Jesus was a son, he learned obedience through what he suffered. Jesus was obedient, but he went through the process of learning obedience as well. And his obedience led to life for a disobedient humanity. And if you were wondering who I'm talking about, I'm talking about you and me. Disobedient humanity. Jesus paved the way to new life. But why is it important that Jesus was born under the law? Well, the whole book of Galatians is about the law. The Galatian Christians were beginning to think that it would be wise to add the ceremonial law of God back into 
Christianity. They'd begun believing that they could attain God's favor that way. They thought, of course, yeah, grace is required, but isn't God's grace meant to mix with good works? Don't we have to little, a little work to do to acquire God's favor? But this passage will show us that actually we're made into God's children, adopted as sons, because Jesus came under the law. And that leads us to our last question, number four. Why did Jesus come? Why did Jesus come? Here's why he came. Here's why he arrived. Verse five, to redeem those who were under the law so that we might receive adoption as sons. To redeem those who were under the law so that we might receive adoption as sons. What this verse shows us is the fundamental way our relationship to the legal code of God's word shifted when we met Jesus. He came to redeem those, it says in verse five, who were under the law. Now, redeem is a freedom word. It means to be set free. Jesus came to set people free from the burden of the law. We were under the law and we were condemned by the law because we could never keep it in its entirety at all times. We could never even keep it in our hearts, Jesus taught us in Matthew chapter five. Evil loomed within us and the law was there to pronounce, hey, you're guilty before God. But Jesus came to set us free, to redeem us from that kind of relationship with God. There was no reason for the Gentile Galatian converts to try to relate to God through the ceremonial law of God just as there is no reason for us to try to relate to God that way today. We've been set free from that law. And having been redeemed from being under the law, we receive something else. Look at verse five. It says, we receive the adoption as sons. This is the real goal of Jesus's coming, not just to redeem us from the law, but to get us to the point where we could receive the adoption as sons. Now, I'm sure that some of you today, you're wondering at that word sons. You know, why doesn't it say sons and daughters? And I want to talk about that because even a cursory glance of the Old and New Testament reveals God's plan to reach both men and women. And most churches, frankly, have more women walking with the Lord than men walking with the Lord. So why does Paul say that God came to make sons? Now, in many verses like this one throughout the New Testament, uh, the answer would be that cultures that initially received the New Testament uh, would have seen sons as an expression for children. So women are included in the phrase, but that's actually not the right answer in this verse. Paul is intentionally excluding the female to say sons for a very specific reason. You see, in Roman society, the son was the one who would inherit the position and the property of the master. He was the heir of the father. Now our passage tells us here that Jesus's goal was to come so that he might give us the adoption as sons, that we might receive the adoption as sons. So the reason he used the word sons is because of this word adoption. And now when I say adoption, I know that many of us are thinking about babies or young children who are adopted and brought into families but I want you to get that idea out of your mind, at least for today with this Bible study, because 
We actually come into God's family by birth. We're born again, according to John chapter three. Like little babies, we're walking before God. We are born again, born into the family of God. But we are also adopted in a different kind of way than we would commonly think of. You see, in Roman culture, adoption could happen to a full-grown adult servant who was given the rights and privileges of the son. The master would see a favored servant and say, I am adopting you. You now have my name. You have my possessions. You have the position of a full-grown son in my eyes. That's why Paul said that we receive the adoption as sons. God sent his son, Jesus, so that we could have Jesus's position before the father. The son came so that we might receive the adoption as sons. Before the father, we have the position of the son. This is why our relationship with the law has been fundamentally changed. You cannot earn a better position before God because a better position before God does not even exist. You can't find it because if you're in Christ, you already have the most supreme position before God that you could ever have. You have the same position in God's sight as the very son of God himself. In Jesus, you've got the greatest standing that you could ever hope to have. That's why it's important for Paul to point out that God adopts all believers as sons. He's trying to draw that parallel to Roman adoption of sons. Now notice how this doctrinal statement began as we wrap this up today. You know, the whole thing that we read, this little creed, look at verse four. It started out with God sent forth his son. Why did God do this? Why Christmas? To set us free from the law so that we might receive the adoption as sons. You see it? This little creed starts with the sending of the son and it ends with the adoption of many sons. The son came to make sons. He came to bring you home. So this Christmas, when you reflect on the little baby in a manger, know that he was the son that the father sent in love. He came to set you free from your broken relationship with him. He came to give you his position, adopted as sons by God. And if you have Jesus, you have his position. So you have the deep, deep love of God. Merry Christmas, church. Have a wonderful week, and I hope to see you at our Christmas Eve services. Thank you for listening. If you would like more teachings and information about Calvary Monterey, please visit calvary.com. You can also find books, teachings through the Bible, and articles from our lead pastor at nateholdridge.com. Thanks again for tuning in. See you next week.